0: Welcome to the Wake Up With Jamie podcast, where we interview people from all walks of life who have inspiring life stories to share with us and the rest of the world. Here's your host, Jamie Knight. All right, hey guys, it's Jamie here from the Wake Up With Jamie podcast, just uh, chilling out here in beautiful Medellin, Colombia. It's a very nice day outside, the sun is beaming. I've got an awesome guest on with me today. I've never met him in person, but I'm meeting him now, and you guys are going to meet him too. So, his name is Gary Arndt. And um, without further ado, Gary, what's going on in the kitchen?
1: Uh, thanks for having me. Not been doing a whole lot of traveling lately, but uh, did a yeah. whole lot beforehand.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. I've, I've read, uh, read your resume. And, you know, you've traveled to, tell me, like, it's over 200 countries?
1: Yeah, it depends how you define country. So, like, mm-hmm. countries and territories.
0: Okay. So. Like, I mean, well, I can't even, I'm not even going to ask which is your favorite country unless you're going to tell me like you could just off the straight, off the top of your head, what is your favorite country?
1: Well, I don't have one. Uh, but the short answer I normally give people when I get that question is I usually say South Georgia Island. Yeah. So it's uh, between South South America and Africa above Antarctica. It's a mm-hmm. British territory. No one actually lives there. It's primarily a whole lot of penguins. And, really? Yeah. Most ships... When they go to Antarctica, they go from like Ushia, they go directly down to the Antarctic Peninsula. But every couple times a year, ships will actually go to South Georgia on the way to Antarctica. And that's usually the highlight of the season for most of the people that work on the boats for a really good reason, because it's just an amazing place. Uh, the landscape and the wildlife that you find there is unlike anything else on Earth. And when you get off on a zodiac on the beach and there's a quarter million penguins surrounding you and they have absolutely no fear <clears throat> and it stinks, and it's really loud. It's just an amazing yes. experience. The tour I was on went to the Falkland Islands, South Georgia, Antarctica, and then back. Uh, I mean, there's regular companies that do this, that offer tours.
0: That's, um, that sounds cool. So that's your favorite place, I guess.
1: It, it's the one I always mention, just because it really is special. And everyone I've known that's been there kind of agrees that it's unlike any other place in the world. And it's one of those places that really just sticks out in your mind after you've been there.
0: Let's go back, Gary. Let's go back to when you were younger. Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, Wisconsin.
0: You've been travelling for around nine years. What, what, like when you were younger, did you have that desire to go and travel? Like, was that something that you just felt like you needed to go and do one day when you got older, or was it um, something that you're inspired by from family or friends or you know TV?
1: No, I. So Wisconsin is right in the middle of the United States. So mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: I didn't see salt water until I was 21 years old, just to give wow. you an idea. It's really yeah. landlocked. And for most Australians, that completely blows them away because you all live next to the beach.
0: Yeah, that's um, right.
1: But yeah, growing up, we never really traveled much. We did a trip once. You know, we would occasionally do some road trips with the family uh, once we went into Canada. You know, we did things like that. But there was no international travel to speak of with my family at all. What happened is I had started a business in the nineties. I started an internet company and I sold that to a great big international corporation. And I convinced them to send me to all their offices around the world. So I had this three week whirlwind trip where they sent me to, uh, Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, Frankfurt, uh, uh, Brussels, Paris, and London. Wow. And I I went around the world and I saw this stuff and that really kind of got it started. Then a couple of weeks after, or a couple of years after that, I went, I did a trip to Iceland. I did one to Argentina and it caught the bug. And I was really kind of at a point in my life where I didn't know what to do. And the idea just sort of dawned on me. I could could just go travel for a year or two. You know, I had nothing stopping me. I had no wife, no kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a lot of money saved up. And so that's what I did. And except for a year or two, I just never stopped.
0: What sort of, like, can I ask, what sort of internet company did you start? And how old were you when you started it?
1: I was, I guess, about 24 when I started. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, really early in the internet. Maybe it was 25. But uh, back then, you really just had static HTML pages. And I had a college roommate that started a, a company to create a product to make it easy to hook up databases with websites. And he had companies that came to him and said, oh, we'd like our, you know, website to, to be done this way. And he didn't actually want to build the websites. He wanted to focus on the tool. So he asked me, well, do you want to do this? So I was like, sure. So I began doing it and then I got some friends involved and they had friends and, you know, more and more companies began coming to us because very few people were doing it at this time. And the next thing you know, uh, four years later, I had fifty employees, and mm-hmm. wow. that's that's when I sold the business uh, when I was twenty eight.
0: Yeah. So, um, so were they were they from like the U.S. or were they from all over the world?
1: Uh, from the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time we just had the one office uh, in the U.S. Uh, it wasn't until I, I sold it that we started getting offices and employees from different places.
0: Okay, and was it like a typical startup?
1: No, it was, I mean, it was in the kind of the first internet boom era. So I never got venture funding or anything like that. I just yeah, bootstrapped the whole yeah. thing. And some of my employees did come from other countries, but we were all working out of the same office. So uh, specifically, I remember I had some employees that were from Cyprus and I've actually gone to visit them uh, subsequently. They, they live in Cyprus now. I had one who was from Turkey, uh, one mm-hmm. who was from Pakistan. So we did have international employees, but. All in one spot.
0: It sounds uh, it sounds like a you've um, you created something pretty big there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was at the you know right place at the right time. You know, yeah. the, trying to do a similar business like that today, I don't think would be successful because everything's hooked up to a database. It's just not a big deal anymore. But I mean, just yeah. to give you an idea, that was I started that before you know there was Linux, before there was WordPress, yeah. before there was a lot of this stuff, and just making a website was really a pain. You know, getting yeah. the just getting a server could be an extremely expensive proposition uh, when the internet first started.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've got things like big commerce and Shopify and, you know, WordPress and all those. You know, anyone can pretty much like jump in on their own website now, these days, right?
1: Oh, it's trivial. I, you know, after I sold that company, I started another business where uh, we ran a network of video game websites. And, okay. We I remember having a full rack of servers in the server room and we had to buy all the equipment. So we bought all the machines, uh, backup tapes and everything else. And we thought we were doing really good given that we had all this traffic and we were running it out of one server unit. And there was like these large companies that had rows and rows of servers. Today, we could do that same thing. For for nothing, almost you know, it's like twenty dollars a month. You just rent yeah. it. You don't even have to buy the equipment.
0: Literally, back then you couldn't even send an SMS.
1: When I started traveling, it was in two thousand seven, and it was about one month after Steve Jobs announced the iPhone, and it went on sale several months after I'd started traveling. And my first place I traveled to was in the Pacific, so okay. I was kind of out island hopping around the Pacific to these different islands when the iPhone came out. And it was not available, obviously, in like Samoa and Tonga and places like that. Yeah. And yeah. it was August of 2007. I got back to Honolulu and I went out of my way to go to a, an Apple store to actually go see this thing that I had only been reading about to see if it was real. Because part of me kind of didn't believe yeah. it. <clears throat> but <laughs> since then, smartphones have made traveling almost, oh, it's almost like cheating. You know, with yeah. the ability to pull up maps and get reservations and translate, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's so, so much easier than it used to be.
0: Restaurants and, you know, you know, booking things, everything is just like, you know, I was chatting to one of my uh, mates last night actually about, you know, back in the day when, you know, you'd have like paper maps. And like, I'm sure back when you were traveling a little bit, you probably would have had to have gone off some paper maps too. You know, like old school maps to see where things are, and I mean, it would be interesting and make the journey more—I um, uh, don't know—the better, a different experience, I guess. But, but I don't think um, I don't think it like I would enjoy to do that every, every single day. I want to travel somewhere every time I want to travel somewhere. To look at maps and see how how to get there on on a paper map.
1: Well, that's what you had to do, though. I mean, yeah, you know, even when I started, I was running my website and something else you don't see as much anymore are internet cafes. Internet cafes mm-hmm. back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, were a really big deal, and for a lot of places I visited, that's what I had to do. I had to go to the internet cafe to log on because I couldn't find a Wi Fi signal anywhere. Now, yeah. Uh, And I should add the phones you got were very difficult to like get a SIM card. You know, you couldn't, you may have a phone, but it wouldn't necessarily work in another country or it would be ridiculously expensive. Now getting a SIM card, super easy. In fact, uh, I have T-Mobile here in the United States and I can go to, I don't know, it's got to be close to 200 countries now and get international roaming at no extra charge so I don't even need a SIM card.
0: Uh, I remember like me, myself traveling different countries and stuff, like, you know, I had to go and buy SIM cards. And even here in, in Colombia, I, my first time here was in 2015, but I've uh, been in and out since then. But, you know, when I stayed here for more of a longer period in 2017, like you get the local SIM card and, you know, all of a sudden, you, you, you know, you've got, you think you've got enough charge and that it runs out and then you've got no, you've got no data. It was, it's a full, full mission. So, um, in that, and that's in most countries. And, um, recently I signed up to Google fire. Uh, well not recently, but probably about two years ago and, or maybe just, over, just under two years ago, but like that is absolutely amazing. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be the same as your SIM card with uh, T-Mobile. You can travel all over the world and it just log on to the, to the nearest, to the nearest network.
1: It's only going to get better. I think for a lot of people, uh, more and more, you know, uh mobile providers are doing that. There are still some places though, like when I go to when I fly into London, they usually will have a vending machine with SIM cards right there at Heathrow. And I can just pop that in. And it's like with three mobile, it gives you a month of unlimited internet and it's at, you know, fast speeds. Plus they also have unlimited roaming in like France and a couple other countries. So if you do go to Europe, you can just sort of use that.
0: So tell me, which countries, what were your top three countries in the Middle East that you liked the most?
1: I would say Oman, mm-hmm. Jordan, and shockingly enough, Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> well, it, yeah, so if let's say you fly into Dubai or something. <clears throat> my advice for people in Dubai is like, take a day, go to the malls, go see the big buildings, and that's kind of Dubai. Uh, Then go to Oman because Oman will be more closer to like classic Arabia than what you're going to see anywhere else. Uh, Jordan just has a lot of cool stuff with Petra and Wadi Rum. And there's actually a lot of of interesting things in like the north eastern part of the country that very few people bother to visit. It's kind of just desert out there, but uh, they have a lot of ruins that are kind of interesting. And then I did a trip to Saudi Arabia and they're really just opening it up. Not the easiest place to travel, but in the north, up near Al-Ula, not, you know, most people that are going to Saudi Arabia, you know, the vast majority are going there for the Hajj because you're, you're, you know, they're Muslim or they're there on business. So they're going to be going to like Riyadh or Jeddah, but up in the north, the landscape up there is incredible, kind of near the Jordanian border. And it's an extension of that, you know, rock formation region near Wadi Rum. Uh, but in, in some ways even more dramatic and they have uh, a ruins there that are very similar to Petra that are carved out of rock. And most people <laughs> don't know about that because they haven't been able to go for, for decades. Really? Yeah. That's
0: pretty cool. So well, you, Saudi you know, Arabia guess- just
1: didn't, Saudi Arabia didn't have tourist visas until like two years ago. Oh, so yeah. it was impossible to well, go.
0: And what was like, was it, you know, was it a bit dodgy or dangerous in any way in your, Oh, not in, dangerous you know, at all.
1: Or, no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the only issue is just, you know, with the government and, uh, you know, it, it's an absolute monarchy, mm-hmm. but they've been working to liberalize. So it used to be women couldn't drive. They had to completely cover their face. Uh, that is not really enforced as much anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I, think it's getting better for the people that live there, but, you know, and I think one of the reasons why it's an interesting place to visit is just because it's been shut off from the world for so long.
0: I do want to. Um, I do want to check it out. Uh, my father is um, Lebanese, so he's he grew up in Lebanon uh, and moved over to Australia when he was nineteen, I believe. So, it's some, It's one of the countries I want to check out as well. Have you been there?
1: Uh, <laughs> not Lebanon, no. Uh, but you know, a lot of stuff is changing right now. So mm. it used to be that. If you went to Israel, it was difficult to go anywhere else because if you had an Israeli passport stamp, they wouldn't let you in. And now they recently signed a peace deal with the UAE. I think they did one with Bahrain. Uh, Rumor is that Oman is in the works, possibly Saudi Arabia. And even the foreign minister of Lebanon said that maybe it's time that they sign a peace deal. In which case, it's going to make traveling in that region, I think, a lot easier. Um, Yeah. Where you could go to Israel and then go to other Arab countries as well, and and maybe even cross the border. I've crossed the border from Jordan to Israel, so it's possible. But it was mm-hmm. even when I did it, it was just kind of a pain. So yeah. it wasn't something you'd, you you want to something you probably want to avoid if you know if you didn't
0: have to do it. On most of your travels over the past um, nine years, did you like? Were you traveling predominantly alone? Were you by yourself, or did you have? Um, people that you'd meet along the way or friends that come from your home country and join you for a stint or how did, how did you do that?
1: Uh, primarily by myself, you mm. know, there was a lot of people when I started traveling, it's actually been, you know, it'll be 15 years in March that I started traveling, but, uh, I had a lot of people, it's like, yeah. Oh, we're going to come and and, you know, travel with you on the road. And no one ever did.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they, always,
1: there's always a reason to not travel, to, to come up with some excuse. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I had some, I have some friends who were travelers and I, a couple of times I would, you know, go on trips with them, but for the most part, it was all just by myself.
0: And and what was the, like, what was your, uh, form of transport? Did you, did you just fly from country to country or did you hire motorbikes or cars or what? and drive to different countries? What, what did you do?
1: It totally depends on where I am. Of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so kind of what you're uh,
0: doing
1: Middle East uh for that so like going from say UAE to Oman mm-hmm. I did that by bus so I went from wow. Dubai to Muscat by bus and then I took a ferry mm-hmm. from say to the so if you look at a map of Oman it's split into two little parts the main mm-hmm. part like on the corner of the peninsula. And then there's this this thing called the Moosendam Peninsula that goes into the Strait of Hormuz. I took a ferry up there. Then I took a another bus back. And then I flew from there to, to I think, to Qatar and then Bahrain uh, and then to Kuwait. But like in Australia, I've driven basically the whole country. Really? Um, in In parts, yeah. I've gone by car from the equivalent of Adelaide to uh, Melbourne all the way up to Cairns, And then yeah. I've driven from, well, I've driven from, um, uh, Alice Springs to Adelaide. And then I've driven Darwin to Perth. Right, so I yeah. haven't, so I haven't driven like the Nullabora from Adelaide mm-hmm. to Perth yet. That segment, that segment, and I haven't really driven from like say brisbane to to darwin but other than that i've yeah. driven you know quite a bit of the country and it's not like yeah, there's roads yeah. going through the middle of it so
0: no not yet maybe one day <laughs> <laughs> i mean another country would be easy to drive is your country the u.s you know oh yeah i've, I've driven a little bit around there and seen a lot of a lot of cool places in the united states they have got lots to see lots to offer um in australia did you um whereabouts did you uh base yourself while you're there and how long were you there for
1: I, well, I've had several trips to Australia, so I would say the total amount of time I've spent in Australia is maybe a little under six months. Mm-hmm. Um, my first time I was there was 2008, and I spent maybe a month in Melbourne just because I was coming off, being in Southeast Asia for a while, and then I just sort of worked my way north from there, uh, went to Canberra, Sydney, you know, kind of up the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, did the stuff everyone does, Fraser Island, whatnot. By then I my visa was expiring. So I flew to Papua New Guinea uh, from Cairns and then from there to Darwin. So that's kind of how I got from Cairns to Darwin. Then from right. in Darwin, I just rented a car, drove down to Perth. But then I made several trips back. I went to uh for, um Lord Howe Island. So I do a lot of stuff with tourism boards. And this was back in, I think, 2011, Australian Tourism Board contacted me, asked me if I wanted to visit or see the Australian Open of surfing. And I was like, meh, surfing's not my thing. It's like, well, what if we throw in a trip to Lord Howe? I'm like, okay.
0: <laughs> so I
1: did that. Yeah, been to Tasmania, too, uh, which I also yeah. really enjoyed. And yeah. different, you know, different things in between. So even like, you know, and I, I, I even think Australia is another country you really have to drive you know, just yeah. flying between yeah. the major cities, you know, 80% of the population lives in five cities in Australia, yeah. you know, all yeah. the capital cities, but there's a lot in between. And if you want to yeah, see that, you pretty much have to do it by car. Yeah. By most of my time in Queensland was probably spent, uh, I didn't spend a lot of time in that area around gold coast, Brisbane. I actually kind of went past that and mm-hmm. it was more like, uh, Airlie Beach, and then up to Cairns, and then Port Douglas. That area around the reef is where I spent most of my time in Queensland.
0: Nice. nice. I used to live up in Port Douglas and Cairns when I was younger. Pretty nice places up there, just as long as you steer clear of the box jellyfish. (laughs) Well,
1: early on in my travels, I visited Palau, and they have this place there called the Jellyfish Lake, and there's tens of thousands of these small jellyfish about the size of your fist that float around, and uh, you go swimming in there with them. And because, like I said, I never saw saltwater until I was 21. I grew up in the middle of the continent. I don't know anything about jellyfish. So when we got to the lake, I just jumped in the lake and started swimming around. And everyone that was with me was from Australia. And they were all freaking out about jumping in the water with jellyfish because they grew up fearing jellyfish. And I was too dumb to know any better. Uh, oh, they've evolved see. away their, they've evolved away their stingers cause they're in a lake. They're not out in the open ocean and there's no predators there.
0: Well, I mean, did you go swimming, you went, you must've gone swimming in Cairns and Port Douglas, the reefs and stuff like that.
1: Uh, yeah, I do diving. So I've, I've done several dives out in the reef, uh, and actually took a helicopter to, to one of the dive boats once. Uh, I think it was from Airlie Beach and that way I'd, I got some aerial photos of like the Sundays and whatnot.
0: So you enjoyed Australia by the sounds of it?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, I really like Western Australia too. Uh, because it's just, there's no one there. It's just an enormous, you know, expanse of space, especially when you get into like the Northwestern part of the country around Broome, there's just nothing there. Um, and you know, you know, Perth is a big city, but there's nothing next to Perth. It's just kind of this thing out by itself. Um, so to to really experience Western Australia, I mean, there's really nothing like that. There's no, we don't have anything like that in the U.S. That's so remote and removed. Yeah, I mean, you can have this just enormous expanses of
0: beach all to yourself. You've spoken about you know traveling around and you know you you, you built a company and you sold it and you know you've had some cash to to go off. Did that cash last you the whole time, or like did you create sort of new businesses along the way uh, while you were traveling for the for the nine years straight? What tell me something more about that.
1: Well, my website became pretty popular and I gathered a pretty large following on social media and, Mm uh, my photography really improved. I didn't know anything about it when I started and I I ended up being, uh, named the travel photographer of the year several times in North America. So that was able to, uh, fund my travels for quite a while. Plus, like I said, I was working with tourism boards, uh, Mm -hmm. travel companies, uh, to do promotional things so that helped a lot
0: as well so that was pretty much you were you were fueling off your social media um and photography while while you're traveling uh after a right. period yeah that's awesome so um what do you what sort of camera do you use
1: uh currently i'm using a sony a7r2 but in the past okay. i used nikon but i was kind of upset with their rate of progress so i switched to sony i want to say like four years maybe uh pretty happy with it uh you know, it's a full frame camera, really good in low light. And, you know, I've just taken some some great shots with it. And I've gotten shots I never could have gotten before uh, because I'm using that camera. So that's, that's, that's really what matters.
0: Do you just take, like, do you take GoPros around with you or do you just have just that camera and that's your go-to?
1: That's it. I don't bother with GoPros. I mean, if you're doing video, that kind of matters. But I just mm-hmm. focused on still photography.
0: The pandemic, you, you spoke about, well, I've read about how you pivoted. Tell me more about that during COVID what, and what was your plans? What Where were you actually based during the whole COVID?
1: I was, uh, well, I lived in Minneapolis. So what happened is I got back from a trip in on February 28th from Portugal. And at the time, this was, you know, COVID was in the news. It was mostly in China. Then I think there were a couple of cases in Italy that were being talked about. I got back from Portugal. I get really sick for a week. And I didn't think really? about it. I thought I just had the flu. In hindsight, yeah. maybe I had COVID. I never got a yeah. test, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, but then over the course of March, everything just changed. Uh, you know, I'd run tours. I'd have people that would book tours through my website, You know, visit the website. So I had advertising revenue, affiliate income. And all, it all just disappeared because people stopped traveling. And the travel industry stopped paying money for marketing and advertising and tourism boards they get their money from usually taxes on hotels and things like that so they didn't have any money and everyone went into survival mode they weren't you know they they were just trying to hang on not go bankrupt uh that was the only concern so my income dropped by 95 percent Really? You know, it, just, right. it just disappeared. I never in a million years would have thought that the, that the tourism industry would disappear, right?
0: shut down completely, right? Yeah. And
1: that's fundamentally what happened. So at first I thought this was going to be over in a couple of weeks. I think a lot of people sort of thought that in yeah, March. So. so in fact, I was even talking to a guy who does tourism stuff in China and they were getting the brunt of it. And I was mm-hmm. telling them, oh, maybe we could do a project in like April or May where, you know, to help the, the tourism industry come back in China. That, that's kind of how naive I was back in March and as far as what I thought would happen. I did not expect the whole world to shut down and for it to happen this long. Um, yeah. But after, you know, May and June kind of happened, I realized I, I needed to sort of do something. So I had this idea in the back of my mind of doing a podcast uh, a couple of years ago and I basically brought that idea back, but I changed it. So instead of doing a, a longer form show, um, I decided to do a daily show, a okay, daily yeah. scripted show, because to me, the, the thing about travel, usually when people talk about travel and you talk about travel podcasts, yeah, it's a lot of how to travel, you know, yeah. here's tips to fly, here's tips to save yeah. money, how to pack yeah. a bag, stuff like that and yeah, exactly. to me. Yeah, that stuff is important. That's an important part of traveling, but that's not why you travel. Yeah, no. I don't know if you've there's been some news stories since the pandemic started of airlines that are offering flights to nowhere, or you can get a flight experience where you you basically, you know, sit in a plane for several hours and they'll give you airplane food, but it doesn't go anywhere. (laughs) I'm like, why would you do that? flying (laughs) yeah flying is the part of travel that sucks why would you want to replicate the worst part of it yeah to me it's always going somewhere cool and meeting people and doing cool things and learning stuff so i i I started a new podcast that is not about travel per se but it's Mm -hmm. about things I've learned along the way traveling and they could be stories of people. It could be stories of places, uh, whatever. And, uh, so I do it every day and I just do these short 10 minute shows. In fact, the the show I just posted yesterday was about, uh, Australia actually, uh, the last, yeah. So in 1984, the very last Aboriginal people who had never made contact with Europeans, uh, stopped being nomadic, the Pintupi Nine. And they were way out in the middle of the desert in Western Australia. And uh, there were nine of these people in a family. And they came in and they had never seen white people. They had never seen a car. They had never, n- never seen anything. And yeah. it's just a very interesting story.
0: I'll have to have a listen. Uh, what, what's the name of your podcast? I'll put this in the show notes. But um, you'll have to make your way down here, Gary. Down to, you know, Columbia at one point. Yeah,
1: if you look at the map of places I've been, Colombia is just kind of this this hole. Uh, I have a good friend that actually lives in Colombia, and yeah. I keep joking with him it's going to be the last country I visit because he lives there. But, um, <laughs> you know, I've been to most of the, of the countries in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, there's just like there's only two in the Caribbean I have to visit, and they, they happen to be the two biggest ones. There's just one in Central America. So I'm kind of getting down to, you know, uh, the last countries and, and Colombia is definitely on the list.
0: Yeah, man. It's, um, it's, it's definitely a place to come and see. I mean, they don't have uh, any, um, restrictions at the moment, like flying in wise, uh, they've, they've dropped all those restrictions. So that's cool. Uh, most things are open. Um, we've got to wear our masks everywhere, but, um, that's about it.
1: Well, are you, are you like just traveling around South America at the moment or are you kind of so, permanently in Colombia?
0: I um, so I I've, I've worked on um, on yachts and I've travelled uh, a lot with on, on super yachts around. Um, but I'll, I pretty much left Australia in 2017 and moved over to Medellin, um, and then uh, Mexico, and, and sort of that's where that's where it started for me. Continued on to the US, and then um, and then over to Europe and back here. I usually always come back to back here for a few months. Um, Every year, roundabout because it is nice. It is cheap, leveraging the dollar and stuff like that. Um, nice people, and you've got. I've got a little group of friends here in um, in Medellin. My expats from America and Poland and Canada and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a cool little community down here as well. Um, so, it's sort of like a second home. I, I feel. Yeah, that's uh, that's the plan. Just um, working on e-commerce and getting something, getting some things started on there, and. Um, yeah, that's that's my plan pretty much for the moment. I might be actually heading back to Australia uh, next year, early next year, depending on the lockdown and the COVID and all that jazz. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, they're uh, really harsh very, about it in bit. Australia.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, man, it's like they've literally um, like to, for me to re answer I've got to pay three thousand dollars just to get just to enter the country again for quarantine wow. for two weeks. Yeah, so I don't really want to do that. I would prefer to wait, but there is an opportunity that I might don't take for six months and do that opportunity there. And then uh, I mean, I'll leave again. But um, we'll see what happens.
1: I've had a lot um, of people ask me like, oh, where's the first place you're going to visit once you can travel again? And the answer is, I don't know, because I yeah. really don't know when this is going to end or what's going to happen or, or the mm-hmm. process by which, you know, maybe you're going to need a vaccine requirement yeah, I, I don't know yeah. what's going to happen, so I'm really not even making any plans right now.
0: Yeah, I think I think the like I mean a lot of people are going to be against this vaccine, but I think there's going to be pretty much a lot of countries saying you know you, you're only going to be allowed to travel unless you have the vaccine, which is I mean everyone's going to have a different different opinion on that, but um, we'll see how that goes. Um, did you a quick question? Did you ever travel to um, Republic of Georgia?
1: No, I haven't been to the Caucasus yet. That's another. Yeah. Kind yeah. of hole
0: in the list. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually very interested in that that country, and um, it's becoming up. You know, I've been coming for digital nomads, and it's a it's a very cheap country and safe and all that stuff. So um, I'm looking at that. You know, they've got a visa, a digital nomad visa. Probably yeah, there's a
1: bunch of countries that have basically uh, started issuing those visas. Georgia has, Estonia has, Barbados has. Uh, yeah. Uh, a couple other countries have recently too, because I think they're wising up to the fact that if they can get someone to come and live in their country and spend money, but not take any local jobs, yeah. it's a plus to the economy. So why not?
0: A hundred percent, you know, like people, they're earning money, they're spending money, they're paying rent, they're eating and drinking and not ta- exactly not taking any jobs, but, um and you know, they get experience and everything. So it'd be, you know, A lot more countries need to jump on this bandwagon, like especially South America. There's none here yet. There needs to be one in Colombia, that's for sure. So, um, because at the moment we can only be here for uh, three months, but then you can extend for another three months. So six months in total per year, Uh, and then you have to leave. Um, So, yeah, they need something like that here for sure. Well,
1: I think, I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's happening with Starlink. That's going to change a lot. Because you're basically going to be able to get high-speed broadband internet everywhere on Earth. And it's going to open up remote islands, uh, places in Africa, you name it, that currently you know you, you couldn't work remotely from because of the infrastructure. It's going to open yeah. all of that up. Oh, yeah, but... well, you know who Elon Musk is, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so his company SpaceX has been putting, they now have almost 900 satellites. And they're in a low-Earth orbit constellation. They just started the beta program about a month ago uh, mm-hmm. for people in northern latitude. So if you're in the northern United States or southern Canada, it's basically it's a satellite internet service, except because it's in low-Earth orbit, you have very low latency and very good download speeds. So there's tons of screenshots of people that are in the beta who've literally taken their dish out to the middle of a forest in the middle of nowhere and are mm-hmm. able to get 150 megabits per second download speeds.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: And they're, they keep adding more satellites They're they're doing about two launches a month where they have about 40 satellites in each uh, rocket. And Mm -hmm. as they add more, they're going to, so it's about 45 degrees North or South. So the same level of latitude North or South. So they're getting to the point where Southern Australia and Tasmania is going to be covered. Mm -hmm. And they're just basically working their way towards the equator. And as they do that, it's yeah. You're going to have fast internet everywhere, everywhere on the planet.
0: Gary, did um, do you speak any other languages?
1: Not really. Mm-hmm. Um, I speak a bits of enough where I can order food or a hotel room in German, Spanish, a mm-hmm. little bit of Portuguese. You learn hello, thank you, goodbye, basic words in you mm-hmm. know most countries, uh, but. The truth is the international language of travel and tourism is English. That's kind of the language you got to know, you know, all over the world. That's what, that's what people are learning. So
0: you do drink wine by by any chance?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, when it's available.
0: What country would you say your favorite bottle of wine was from?
1: Uh, I have to make a a couple, a couple of them. Uh, I had a Chardonnay actually in Margaret from Margaret river in Australia. I went to a winery down there. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was exceptional. Um, There's a white wine in the north of Spain in the Basque region called Chocolate. And it's almost never exported outside of Spain. And it's something I always stump sommeliers with uh, to ask them if if they're familiar with it. And if they're a good sommelier, they'll always kind of know about it. But pretty much Mm -hmm. no one else will. Uh, La Riojas in Spain as well. Uh, I've really enjoyed that. And, uh, probably Argentinian Malbec.
0: Over the years, I've sort of got more into drinking some wine, red wine, white wine. And, um, I just like to hear other people's opinions on, um, on their, their wine experience and especially people who have traveled a a fair bit as well. I've had some
1: other drinks that are really good. Uh, there's an ice wine that I've had from up in Quebec. Uh, and I don't know if, you, if you've ever had ice wine, but it's basically they let the grapes freeze, uh, which is why yeah. it works in Quebec. And yeah. then it, it, it's like a really sweet dessert wine. You have, can only find that in Northern Latitudes. And then probably my favorite drink of all are the hard ciders from Northern Spain. Oh, I
0: really? absolutely
1: love those. And uh, yeah. if you ever get a chance while you're up there to visit a, a cidería, those are uh, great. They're extremely dry. And hard to find. I had to really hunt them down to to find bottles of it in the US.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um like you've been to Ireland, right? Yep. And you've had their cider over there.
1: Yeah, the ciders that you find in like uh Ireland and the UK, they they do have some drier ones that are available. Mm-hmm. But if you get something like a Strongbow, they tend to be a bit yep. more sweet, not necessarily the kind that I like, but Yeah, Uh, I'll I'll still if I'm at a pub in the UK or Ireland, I'll probably order a cider before a beer.
0: That's interesting. I didn't uh, didn't know that. So, what was the name of that cider? Which is a just a hard cider in northern Spain, right?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's just it's just the type. So, anywhere's from like uh, Asturias, uh, Basque Country, uh, Galicia, they all kind of have that really hard cider. And they have if you go online, you can find videos of the way they pour it. What they do is they hold the cup as far down as they can. And then they hold the bottle over their head. And oh, really? yeah, so it, it pours, you know, this really, really long pour into the glass. And then they only serve maybe about as much in a glass as you would as if it was a hard liquor, like if you were serving whiskey or something. And oh, really? yeah, because yeah. it's it I'm, actually I don't know what the alcohol content is. I'm guessing it's probably a little bit higher than most ciders, but because it's so dry, yeah. uh, that's how it's served. And, uh, yeah, it's just great stuff.
0: Is it with, um, ice? Like you put ice in the glass first or they just, they have no ice. It's just in a normal plain glass.
1: Uh, when I've had it in Spain, it's usually without ice. I went to, a Ciguria in the Basque country where they had this enormous wooden barrel, like twice your, you know, an average person's height and a tiny little spigot on it. And they would turn it and the pressure in the barrel would make the cider to shoot out and you just hold your glass in the stream and then you kind of just follow it up the stream and the person behind you waits with their glass and then they do the same thing. And really? that's how everyone fills it up.
0: That's funny. Where, where was that?
1: That was outside of Bilbao. Um, I'm guessing it was like, I don't know, within 30, 40 kilometers of Bilbao. I forget the exact spot. I'd have to go look it up.
0: That's That's awesome. That uh, sounds great. Gary, it's, uh, it's almost time, but um, I've, had, I've had a pretty good time talking to you, learning some new things, a lot of new things, actually, things I could barely even talk to you about because I haven't experienced, but one day, maybe. Travel um, is a lifetime endeavor. Yeah, it's, it's something that's, you know, I think everyone needs to do at some point, and they don't have to do it forever, but I think traveling and experiencing the world and some languages and cultures and stuff, it's like, everything that you exactly, that you've done you know, I think people just need to, um, to sort of step outside the square and get out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what I tell everyone, you know, Mm -hmm. don't bother creating these elaborate plans. Just get a plane ticket and go.
0: It's been awesome, Gary. I appreciate you and uh, being, being able to come on my podcast. I do. And, um, I'll put all your links and, um, yeah, uh, it's been great. So, um, I'm just going to close up the show now and say thanks, guys, for listening. And uh, we, we will uh, chat again soon, next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Wake Up With Jenny podcast. We appreciate each and every one of our listeners. See you next week. And remember, every person on our planet has a story.